We're going to be talking about a very personal and real subject this morning, the subject of grief. It is very real for everybody. If it has never touched you, it will. That is guaranteed. So hopefully throughout the course of this morning, you're going to find some tools to help you through it. There are, we know, a number of people that are sitting here dealing with grief. That's why it's so personal, and that's why it's so real. And as we go into this message, then it seems very fitting to me that we would ask God to guide our thoughts, to guide this message, and to take over for these next few moments. So we're going to do that right now. I've asked Steve Snockenberg, one of our elders, to come and offer that prayer. So let's go before God together. Father God, grief is a very powerful emotion that you have um, instilled in each and every one of us. And there are very few people here today, Lord, that have not experienced some form of grief. Lord, I'm convinced that the answer to grief is found in your word. The answers are there. They will walk us slowly through the process of grief. Lord, thank you for that. This morning I pray for Phil, that you would help him with the message and that you would help him to communicate to us how you want us to deal with that very personal emotion of grief. So be with us today, Lord. Open our eyes, open our hearts, and allow us to see what you have to say about this very delicate subject. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Steve. I'm a big fan of the stories of the Bible. As long as I can remember, I've been a big fan of the stories of the Bible. Some of them capture my attention more than others. The ones that really grab me are the ones that have obscure details in them. When I write, I I tend to put in a lot of details. Some people tell me I put in too many details. One of the biblical writers of obscure details is Luke, Dr. Luke. I think if the two of us had walked together and talked together face to face, we would have enjoyed one another's company. At least I know I would have enjoyed his because of the way he writes, the way that he thinks, the way that he speaks. I want to show you two stories from the Gospel of Luke that demonstrate these obscure details. Both of them should cause you to go, whoa, hold it. That's very curious. I haven't seen that before. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I need to explore that. I'll show you what I mean. We're actually going to project these. Typically, we don't project Scripture, but I want us all to be able to see this together. Take a look at this. This is Luke chapter 7. Luke writes, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer or the casket they were carrying him on. The bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, did you catch the obscure detail of that? Anybody catch it? Just raise your hand. Here's the obscure detail. Dead men don't talk. That's the obscurity of it. Dead men don't talk. Dead men don't set up, but they certainly don't talk. Could you imagine what it would be like for Steve Snockenberg at the funeral home if he were to walk in after he had embalmed a body and that body was sitting up and he started to have a conversation with it? That's an obscure detail. Luke records it after Jesus intervened here. The young man sat up and he talked to them. Now take a look at the second story. This is chapter 8. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. 
Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for him. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, and he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Do you see the obscure? How many of you caught it? Dead people don't eat. Dead people don't eat. So Jesus raises her from the dead, grabs her hand, gets her up off the bed and says, feed her. Dead people don't eat. I promise you that at every funeral or nearly every funeral that anyone ever attends, this is what they hope for. Lord, have them sit up. Let them talk to me one more time. Let me share a meal with my loved one one more time. That's the longing in the heart of those that grieve great losses. Lord, intervene. The Bible gives us stories of Jesus showing up and touching caskets, touching dead people, and doing that very thing. When he shows up, stuff like that happens. Dead people set up. Dead people talk. Dead people have a meal. When Jesus shows up, that's what happens. But not always. In fact, in today's world, rarely. Rarely. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't show up. It just means that we seldom experience miracles like what we just saw here. We seldom see the dead sitting up. We seldom hear the dead talking. We seldom share meals with those that have passed on. Rather, what we are left with, even after Jesus intervenes, is a deep grief, a tough time in people's lives that they have to wrestle through. And it's not just brief little periods. It can go on for a long, long time. Tom Hanks does a wonderful job of showing what that grief looks like. Take a look at this clip. If there was one question I was allowed to ask... Oh, go ahead. People who truly loved once are far more likely to love again. Sam, do you think that there's someone out there you could love as much as your wife? Well, Dr. Marshall Fieldstone, that's hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Well, I'm, I'm going to get out of bed every morning. Breathe in and out all, all day long. And then after a while, I won't have to remind myself to get out of bed in, in the morning and breathe in and out. And, and then after a while, I, I won't have to think about how I had it great and perfect for a while. Sam, tell me what was so special about your wife. Well, how long is your program? Oh, well, it was a, oh, it was a million tiny little things that when you added them all up, it, it just meant that we were supposed to be together. And I knew it. And I knew it the very first time I touched her. It was like coming home, only to know home I'd ever known. I was just taking her hand to help her out of a car. And I knew it. It was like magic. magic. Well, folks, it's time to wrap it up. I'm Dr. Marsha Fieldstone in Chicago. And to all my listeners, a magical and merry Christmas. And to you, sleepless in Seattle, we hope you'll call again soon and let us know how it's going. <laughs>
Oh, you count on it. It's a really good depiction of what grief looks like, and some of you have experienced it. Some of you have dealt with those emotions very personally, some very recently. Cindy Peake was sitting in first service yesterday. We buried her husband, Glenn. Glenn attended church here for a long time. Cindy knows very recently and very personally what it's like to feel this way. My family and I have been, for the past four or five days, on a cinematic research journey, which means this. We've been looking through all the movies we own, looking for depictions of grief, and here's what we discovered. It's in all kinds of different movies. Grief is so real, it is so personal, it is so prevalent, that it permeates almost every genre of movies. It's in action and adventure movies, it's in dramas, it's in romantic comedies, it's in almost every kind of movie, it's in westerns. It's very real. But grief is not only depicted by those that have experienced loss through death. Instead, grief is pictured in all kinds of different ways. And you might think that this is the only realm in which it happens, but it's not. If you want to know about that, you could sit down and talk to Keith. Over the course of 15 years, Keith worked for five different companies. He lost five different jobs in 15 years. Each time he got a new job, he thought, okay, this is the one. I am going to spend the rest of my working career here, and then I will retire from this place. One time he lost his job just because of a downsizing situation. There was a downturn in the economy. The company had to let some people go. Keith lost his job. Another time he lost his job because of a merger. There was another experience where he lost his job for an unknown reason. There was a a, a conflict between he and a boss, cost him another job. The last time... When they came and told him that he was no longer employed, Keith lost it. He didn't know what he was going to do. Driving home, he just grabbed the steering wheel and he wept and wept and wept. Went in and told his wife and she said, honey, everything's going to be okay. Tomorrow you'll go out and find a job. Well, that wasn't true. He had no desire to go find a job. Instead, he laid on his couch for three months crying, shedding tears. Man, not given to crying. Shedding tears for months because of the loss of a job. It happens that way. It's a loss of identity, especially for men, and and there's a grief attached to that, and he couldn't take it anymore. Five times was too much. You could sit and talk with Dora. Dora had spent a number of years married to a man that, well, he just wasn't all that pleasant. She got it in her mind that things would be better if he was out of her life, and so she set a course to divorce him, and she did it. She divorced him. Then she discovered a loneliness like she had never experienced. Night times were particularly difficult for Dora, so she tried to stay as busy as she could. She occupied herself with activity after activity after activity. But when she would lay her head on the pillow at night, all she could think of was how much she missed him. She grieved the loss of that relationship. And that loss, all of that grief, came through the avenue of divorce. It happens that way. You could talk to the Jones family if you wanted to see a different kind of grief. Ted and his wife had both grown up in families with animals, and they wanted their children to have animals, particularly dogs, as they were growing up, because dogs bring a a unique kind of joy into a home. They wanted their kids to grow up with a dog, so they, they researched breeds. They wanted to make sure they got the right kind of animal, and when they found Rowdy, he seemed to be a perfect fit for their family. At night, he would go between their kids' bedrooms, sleeping with one for a while and then sleeping with the other, and, and those kids loved that dog. The whole family loved that dog. One day, they were late for an appointment, and the whole family was leaving, and so they ran to the car, and For whatever reason, nobody had checked to see that Rowdy was pinned up. Rowdy was inside. When Ted jumped behind the wheel and put the car in reverse, well, that family grieved for a long time what happened. 
They would tell you that standing over that fresh dirt of, of their pet's grave was unlike anything that they had ever experienced. It was very, very difficult for them, very hard for them. Robert and Anna know a different kind of grief. They were married for 12 years, and it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But Robert knew something was wrong with his body, so he went to the doctor. The doctor said, yes, there is something wrong. You have cancer. For a number of years, they fought it, and it looked like they were winning the battle. They spent tens of thousands of dollars to win that struggle. And when it looked like it was all behind them, they started to celebrate. But one night when they laid down and went to bed together, well, that was the last night they would ever do that. Robert didn't wake up the next day. Anna was shocked. She looked at her husband lying in the bed next to her. Her heart was just broken, absolutely broken. She did the funeral. She took care of the family the way she had to. The family took care of her. And for months and months and months, her heart just broke every day. Seemingly, it would heal and then it would break again. She had friends that would come and try to comfort her. They would say all the right things in their minds. Most of the time, they were saying the wrong things. And finally, one day, a very good friend said to her, Anna, how are you doing? And Anna decided that she wasn't going to fake it anymore. And she answered the question blew her friend away. She said, I am very angry. Her friend said, angry? Angry at who? She said, I'm angry at Robert. They said, angry at Robert? How can you be angry at him? She said, because he's gone. He left me here with two children and I have to raise them. He's gone and I can't be with him and I have no idea when I will ever be with him again. And the heartache is too much. The loneliness is too much. Her friend looked at her wide-eyed, not knowing what to say, but she decided in her heart she would never ask that question again because Anna was honest. You see, grief comes through all kinds of different situations. It can come through the loss of a job. It can come as a result of divorce. It can be there when a pet dies. And definitely it is there when we lose a a loved one. Grief is real. And it's all around us. Grief permeates our society. If we're not careful, when grief touches our life, it can change everything for us. You can watch all kinds of things change within your own life based on how you deal with grief. One of the key elements of it, though, is to acknowledge that grief is real so that you can find your way through it. There are different ways that you can do that. Once you acknowledge that grief is a reality and you are dealing with it, then you're a long ways down the road towards healing. You might find your way into an old study called the Kubler-Ross study. It started in 1969. A lady named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with this. She'd been looking at the issue of grief for a long time, and she discovered five stages that she believes, and by the way, so do I, most everyone goes through the five stages of grief. This goes all the way back to 1969. The first stage, according to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, is denial. People do tend to deny that they're in grief. And denial moves into anger, and anger turns into bargaining. And that means bargaining with God. God, if you'll do this for me, then I will do that. God, you take this away from me, and then I'll be able to do these certain things. And once you make your way through bargaining, depression is the next stop until eventually you get to acceptance. Here's the problem with the Kubler-Ross model. Nobody, including Elizabeth herself, can tell anybody how long each one of those stages lasts. It is different for every person. It varies for every individual. And the real catch to it is this. You may make your way through denial and into anger and then go back to denial. You may go through denial and anger and get into bargaining and then go back to denial. And it can all start over. And the whole cycle can continue to perpetuate itself. 
Billy Graham, after all of the years that he has preached, has said of the Kubler-Ross model, he believes that it's real. He believes, just like I do, that everybody goes through those five stages. But what Billy Graham has discovered is that there are real emotions attached to almost every grieving process. And he believes we ought to look at the emotions more than the stages. Billy Graham would teach that some of those emotions would sound like this. There is for almost everybody some form or another of guilt where grief is concerned. Whether that is false guilt or whether that is real guilt, there is some sort of guilt that is attached to grief. That guilt, if it's not reconciled, can take you right into the realm of anger and anger can turn into resentment. And resentment, if it isn't dealt with and those other emotions aren't taken care of, it will bring about panic. And if you have ever seen a person stuck right in the midst of grief, I mean deeply stuck in grief, you've seen that type of panic. And if all of those things are left unreconciled and the people aren't able to make their way through it, if you're not able to make your way through it, here's what grief steals from you, according to Billy Graham. It steals from you the zest for life. Do you catch that? Grief can steal life even from the living if we're not careful and if we don't deal with it the right way. For years and years it has been taught and preached that happiness is a choice and and that's an easy sermon for any of us to preach. That's an easy lesson for anybody to teach. Happiness is a choice. But here's a little, little tidbit to go with that. Yes, happiness is a choice, but grief is a certainty. At some point it will touch you. At some point it will become a part of your life. And if you have lived up to this particular moment without ever experiencing it, you count your blessings. But then with another eye, you watch for it because it's coming. So Billy Graham would go on to say this. The facade of grief may be indifference, preoccupation, anger, cheerfulness, or any variety of emotions. But if we try to understand it, we can learn how to cope with it. He's right. If we can understand it, we can learn how to cope with it. And the Bible can help with that. The first step in all of that is to understand that grief is a human emotion and it has a purpose. And if we'll allow grief to do its work, then we can start healing. We can get into the process of healing. But first you have to acknowledge that it's actually going on. Grief is real. It is there. There are a number of medical doctors that have done studies on the effects of grief in a person's life. They'll say things like this. It will cause a tightening of the throat physically, physiologically. Grief can cause a tightening in the throat, a pain in the chest, shortness of breath. It can cause a loss of appetite and sudden weight loss. And certainly it robs people of sleep to the point of fatigue. Those are some of the physical side effects of grief. One study that I read this past week written by an MD, says that fully 40% of people that go to the emergency room go there because of unresolved grief symptoms in their life. Now, that seemed really high to me. I was talking to Scott Lacefield before first service, and I said, hey, Scott, do you agree with that statement? And he said, I know that there are a number of people that come to emergency rooms with grief-related symptoms. Tony, would you agree with that? But 40% seems pretty high, doesn't it? That's what Scott thought. I did too. That's the fun thing about statistics. You can put any number you want in there. And so these doctors put in 40% and they said that's what it is. But the reality is a number of people go to ERs and prompt cares because of the real effects of grief. But from a spiritual standpoint, here's what grief does or what it can do. It can direct us to God. It can direct us 
to healing. And if we can move out of the physical realm into the spiritual realm, allowing grief to do its work, then we can actually start to experience what God has in store for us. Let me show you in the Bible how this can work. I hope you brought Bibles with you. If you didn't, there are some in the the chairs in front of you. I encourage you to grab one so that you can see this for yourself. We're going to start in the Old Testament, the book of Micah. Micah chapter 7. Israel has been going through a very difficult time. Micah is the prophet of the moment, and he is grieving the choices that Israel has been making. The grief is very real. It's palatable for him. Listen to this, verse 1, chapter 7. What misery is mine... I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. That's exactly how he's feeling. He can't even figure out how to eat. The grief is so extreme in Micah's life that he doesn't know what to do. By the time we get to verse 7 of chapter 7, this is what we read. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. There, his hope is starting to change. Yep, this is really bad. I am mired in grief. I am stuck in grief. But I am waiting on God. That's where my hope is. So much so that by verse 8, he could say this. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. And of course, grief is his enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Now he's getting a a handle on what needs to happen. But first and foremost, he's declaring to the enemy, you will not win this battle. God will win this battle. If you are stuck in grief, hold on to that. Grief will not win. God will win this battle. There was a young mother who had the horrible responsibility of burying her child, putting on a funeral for a child. That is not something any parent ever wants to do, and there are few things that hurt more than that. And that's what this young mom had to do. It changed her life. It robbed her of everything. The zeal of her life was gone. She didn't know how she was going to get from one moment to the next, let alone from day to day, week to week, month to month, was an impossibility for her to even think about. And after a long, long time of laying on the couch and and crying every tear that she had in her body, this young mother decided that she would search Scripture beginning to end to find a verse of Scripture that could help her through this. She needed to find some sort of motivation, something that could help get her off the couch and get her moving. She couldn't cook dinner for her other children. She certainly couldn't go back to work. She was so stuck in the grief that there was no hope. So when she started searching, this is where she found herself. Philippians 4, verse 13. Paul writes these words, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. One of the most powerful verses of Scripture for anybody stuck in grief is right there. I can do everything through him who who gives me strength. And this young mom clung to that verse. When it came time to get up and and make supper for her other children, she had to quote that verse over and over and over again. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. When it came time to go back to work, it was that verse that drove her back to the office. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. When it came time to spend time with her husband and, and just be married, she had to hold on to that verse. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It was that verse that led her out of grief. Because you see, when we acknowledge that it's real and we allow God to direct us to spiritual things and the healing begins to happen, even through the Word of God, things like that begin to show up. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. When we recognize that, folks, when we recognize that, we no longer have to let grief do its work. We can allow God to do His. 
When God does His work, He heals. When God does His work, He restores. Even in grief, when God does His work, He restores. I want to show you one of God's favorite words. It shows up all through the Bible. I was exploring it in all kinds of different ways this past week. And it may surprise you. It's not a huge biblical word. It's not one that you're going to think, gosh, I have never heard that word before. In fact, it's very familiar to it. I'm going to show it to you in three different passages of Scripture. Don't turn with me. We're going to go through these real fast. And we'll see if you can grab it. Here it is. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now from Exodus, we're going to go to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting in verse 3. With your own eyes you saw these great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Now we're going to move into the book of Psalms, right in the middle of the Bible. The psalmist writes these words. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. Very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Did you catch the common word? Did you catch the the whole connected part of it? Somebody just said it. What was that? Through. T-H-R-O-U-G-H, through. In every one of those situations, God said, we've gone through this together. Through is one of God's favorite words. It shows up over and over and over again in the Bible. The implication of it is this. God says, I will be with you on this side of the situation, this side of the grief. I will be with you on this side, and I will be with you all the way through. We will go through this together. No matter how big it is, we will do this together. When God shows up, that's what happens. You have the God of the universe going through life with you. God doesn't always touch the casket. God doesn't always say, sit up and talk. God doesn't always say, now let's break bread together and have a meal with the person that was dead. But God does always say, I will never leave you or forsake you. We will go through this together. Now let's put it in the realm of grief, and I'll show you what this could look like. In order to do that, we're going to go to the book of Isaiah. Now I'm going to ask you to turn with me. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. Hopefully you're going to look real specifically for this word through as we do this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I want to add just a little bit to that, and you can easily do this with this verse. We're going to project it up here for you to see it. Now read with me again as we add of grief to each of these scenarios. When you pass through the waters of grief, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers of grief, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire of grief, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Now, that's a great promise. 
God will go through every aspect of grief with you. But the key word is through. We will start together on this side and we will get together on this side and we will be together all the way through. David seemed to understand that really well. When he wrote the 23rd Psalm, my guess is that that idea was permeating every thought that he had. Turn there with me real quick. Psalm 23. Well, you're going, maybe you're not aware of what was happening in David's life when he wrote this passage. You've heard it at a number of funerals. You've heard sermons preached on it. The 23rd Psalm is written on a lot of plaques in people's homes, but you need to know the background of it. David is on the run for his life. He wrote it from the inside of a cave in a beautiful valley called En Gedi. He was sitting in a cave on one side. King Saul was on the other. Saul is chasing David to kill him. David has been separated from his family. He has been separated from his good friend, Jonathan. And now this man that he respected probably more than anyone he had ever met is trying to kill him. David had snuck into a cave on the other side of En Gedi. He had found Paul he, or Saul. He could have taken his life. He didn't. He went back across the valley. He's in a cave right now writing these words. He's at a, a pretty rough spot. Listen to what he writes. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through, there's the word, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Stop there with me for just a second. The original translations of the Bible, you could take out valley of the shadow of death and replace it with this term, and this is the actual term, through the darkest time of my life. Even though I walk through the darkest time of of my life. That's what David's writing. He says this, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David moves from looking at his situation to looking at God, and that's the recipe for getting through grief. We have to move from our situation to looking at God, and through the whole process is how that happens. Through is one of God's favorite words. It really is. I'll show you how that works. Go with me. We're in the Old Testament. Let's go back to the book of Genesis together. We're going to look at the life of Joseph in about two minutes. This is a quick snapshot. Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob. He is his favorite child. His brothers know it. His dad knows it. Joseph knows it. God, or not God, Jacob's favor has come to rest on this son of his. His older brothers are out in the field tending sheep. Benjamin is too young to do that. Joseph is now going to be sent out there by his dad. While he is on his way, his brothers devise a plan to deal with him. They want to get rid of him once and for all. So they decide that they're going to kill him. Judah One of his older brothers intervenes and says, gosh, what's in it for us if we do that? Let's not kill him. Really, Judah is trying to save his life, but still, he's he's got a little bit of coyote in him too. Judah says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. At least we'll get some money for him. The other brothers say, hey, that's a great idea. Listen to what happens now in verse 37. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 37, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. They pulled him up out of that pit and they sold him into slavery. 
Joseph's grief began in a deep pit. For a lot of people, that's where their grief begins to. It's unexpected. You don't walk out into the wilderness thinking this is what's going to happen to me and then the next thing you know, you're in a pit of grief. It's dark there. It's lonely there. It seems impossible to get out of it. And that's exactly where Joseph was. The Bible does not tell us what he was thinking, but you can imagine. I'll never see my dad again. My dad will never see me again. I will not be with my brothers. They don't care about me. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. All the thoughts of grief running through his mind in that pit. He can hear them talking on the outside of it, and when they pull him up out of there and he sees this this band of Ishmaelites and he figures out what's going to happen to him, the grief had to intensify. For a number of years, things were not good in Joseph's life. For a number of years, Joseph had to struggle, and then God's blessing came to rest on him, and now everything was going well, but still the grief was there. You want to know how I know that? Over the course of the next 12 chapters, you will find two times, both of them 20 years after the fact, when Joseph has to just break down and cry. The grief is right below the surface, and when he sees his brothers again, and they don't know who he is, but he knows who they are, the Bible would tell us that he actually leaves the room and he weeps. The grief comes back to the top. There's another time when they figure out who he is, that Joseph doesn't want them to see the grief that he has gone through. He's talking now about being restored with his dad. He leaves the room and he cries on his face. He cries before God. But God never left him. God said, I'm going to go through this with you, Joseph, no matter how long it takes. Two decades, if necessary. Listen to what Joseph says by the time we get to chapter 50. And this is verse 20. Speaking to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what now is being done, the saving of many lives. What you intended for evil, and we could even say that to Satan, what Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. Even grief. Because grief is a healing process that allows us to see God. Grief is a healing process that draws us closer to the Lord. Grief is a healing process that when it does its work, it allows God to do His work, and we draw near to Him. Grief does that for us. It's a painful way to get there. It's a hard way to get there. And every one of us at some point will have to deal with it. And if we don't have to deal with it, we will know other people that do. And sometimes that's more difficult than going through it ourselves. We find ourselves stuck saying, what am I supposed to do for these people? They are hurt and I don't know how to help them. Anybody ever felt like that? These people are hurt and I don't know how to help them. Throw your hands up just a little higher. See, that's, that's the way that works. I want to give you seven things as we close out this message that can help you help other people through grief. If you're a note taker, you might want to write these things down. We're going to go through them real fast, but they'll be up here on the screen. First thing is this. Ask God to give you a pure heart before you go and visit with that person. A lot of people, when they go to see somebody else that's dealing with grief, go with an agenda. You get rid of that agenda. Best way to do it is the same way David did in Psalm 51. He said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Purify my motives. So you go with a pure heart when you go to visit with somebody that is mired in grief. And a prayer ahead of time is the best thing you could possibly do. Number two, learn to listen more than you speak. When a person is grieving, a lot of the words that you have to say are lost on them. When a person is stuck in grief, they don't really need anybody to share with them how to get out of it. And by the way, if you haven't been there, 
the words that you share are probably hollow and empty, so you ought to just keep your mouth shut and your ears open. Just listen as they talk. And if they don't want to talk, you just sit with them. If they don't want you to sit with them, then leave. But learn how to listen more than you speak. Number three, don't be shocked by what the grieving person says. Do you remember Anna's story early on in this message? Her friend came to her and said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm angry. The friend didn't know what to do with it. A lot of times we don't. Don't be shocked. You just let them talk. The Bible would teach that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's going on in their heart, then you listen. You pay attention and don't be shocked. Number four. And this one I really want you to pay attention to. It'll sound strange coming from a preacher. Let the other person determine how much of God they want in that particular moment. Sometimes as Christians, we want to open up the Bible and just start reading to people because we think it'll be real healing. We want to share all kinds of scripture with them. And and the truth is this. Sometimes when you talk with a grieving person, you are God with skin on and they are upset at God. So don't be shocked. Don't be shocked by what comes out of their mouth. And then remember, sometimes they're not looking for Scripture and they're not even looking for prayer. One of the privileges of being a pastor is I can typically say to somebody, hey, let's pray together. And they'll say, oh, yes, please, let's do. I will never, as long as I live, forget the man who had just lost his son. I'd been with his wife. We had prayed together. And when we got together with him, we talked about everything that was going on. And I said, can we pray together? And he looked right at me and he said, you can pray for me, but not with me. I'm not much interested in that right now. That's okay. Put me up against the ropes. But that was okay because the time came when we could pray together. And God opens up that door. Number five, anticipate needs for people without having to be asked, which simply means just do things for folks. A lot of times grief is a paralyzing aspect of our life and we don't know what to do. And if other people are helping meet some of those needs, it's taking care of the basic things. You don't have to wait for them to ask. By the way, one of the worst things you could ever say to a person in grief is call me if you need me. And we say it all the time. They need you. Show up and anticipate needs. Now, that also means anticipate when to leave. But we say that all the time to folks that are grieving. Call me if you need anything. Let me ask, how many of you have said that to somebody? Okay, I'm right there with you. How many of you have been called? A few of you. There's a whole bunch of us that would say, I've said it, and a whole lot fewer that have ever been called. Be careful of that statement. Number six. Remember, there are many more difficult moments to come. Grief is not a one-day event, nor is it a two-week event. It's not just a two-month thing or a one-year thing. There are a lot more difficult moments to come. Joseph grieved for 20 years. When he had the opportunity for healing, it welled right up and it came out of him. All of that grief did. She's not sitting with us right now, but I think I'd have her blessing to say this. I didn't ask her for it, but I'm going to step out because this is Mary England and I can do that. We were in the the hospital in Kalispell on Friday with Jim and Mary. Jim was having surgery. We prayed about that last week in church. Um, They had found a spot on his pancreas, and they believed that he had pancreatic cancer. So they were removing the tail end of his pancreas and his spleen. Jim's 80 years old. By the way, they told him if he was five years older, they wouldn't do this uh, surgery. But he is 80 and in such great shape, they decided they would go ahead and do it, which was a great thing. While he was laying in the bed waiting for the surgery, he was telling the nurse that the doctors had told him they were 95% sure that it was cancerous, 95% sure. So we stood around the bed and we prayed, God, don't let it be cancer, and, and it wasn't. 
It wasn't. They called back on Friday afternoon and, and there was no sign of cancer. It's still in pathology, but there was no sign of cancer. Isn't that cool? When you ask God to do stuff like that, give God a round of applause for that. But Mary told me as we were standing together that it was the anniversary of Philip's death way back in 1972 on Friday. And she said, I haven't thought about that for a number of years, but they lost their child in 1972, their son, and and Mary was thinking about that that day. There are a lot more difficult moments to come. And that's okay, and you have to make it okay for people, and you have to allow them to say, even if it's 40-some-odd years later, it's okay, it's all right. Listen to their hearts, and you let them grieve. Joseph, 20 years, Mary, 40 years later, it's okay. There are a lot of difficult moments to come. Number seven, when the time is right, direct them to the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's really what it boils down to is when the time is right, you let God open that door. And when he does, be prepared to walk through it. Maybe you want to share words like this with somebody that is stuck in grief. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Maybe you want to share the hope of heaven. Maybe you want to share just the hope of Jesus with somebody. And you can have your Bible ready to do that. Have your Bible ready to help people so that when they come and they share their hearts out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, you can respond with the words of God when God opens that door. I have had the great privilege two times. And for a person like me, that's really what it is. It's a great privilege two times of packing into the Bob Marshall and pack strings. As Deanie's going, as much as I joke around with him, I'm thrilled that he's going because it's a great experience. Both of the times that I've gone, I've ridden towards the back of the pack string, and so that means you have a lot of time just to observe some things. And here's one of the things that I've observed. The animals that we are riding when we go into those camps in the Bob Marshall get a break from time to time because the riders can get off and walk with the animals. can walk the whole way if you want to, or if it seems like the animal's getting kind of soared up, it's no big deal. Get off the animal and just walk them on in. The pack animals don't have that privilege. Once the packs are placed on them at the trailhead, they don't come off until somebody takes them off at the campsite. So if you're riding 10 miles, for 10 miles, they carry that burden. If you're riding 15 miles, for 15 miles, they carry that burden. If you're riding 30 miles, 30 miles, they carry that burden until somebody lifts it off. Grief is just like that. Grief is just like a pack animal that has had a heavy burden placed on them. Until God lifts it off, that burden remains. They have to carry it however long that takes. For some people, that's five miles. For some, 10, some 15, some 30. And then somebody lifts that burden off. But when God takes it off, something pretty special happens. And maybe you can remind people of things like this. John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, if Jesus sets you free, you will be free indeed. And in grief, that's one of the best verses that we can point people to. When Jesus lifts that burden off of you and sets you free, you will be free indeed. But grief is hard to get through. No question about it. It's a heavy burden that weighs a lot of people down. 
Let it do its work so that God can do His. And if you're stuck in it, there is nothing wrong with you praying, Lord, lift this burden from me. Set me free that I might be free indeed. This morning, we invite you to offer a prayer like that. If grief has been chasing you or weighing you down for a long time and you want to pray with somebody to get rid of it this morning or maybe you want to pray for somebody else that's stuck in grief, you can do that. This is a very personal invitation because grief is so personal. But what we want to offer to you is that those prayers are available from the elders of the church. If you want to go over to the prayer room, they'll be there and they will meet you. A couple of our elders will will be there. They will meet you and they will pray with you about these issues. They'll pray that God sets you free, that he lifts the burden. We saw people respond in first service that had been weighted down with grief for a long time. They just needed somebody to help lift it. You can do the same thing. Go and pray and ask God to set you free indeed. Would you stand and pray with us? Well, Father in heaven, this has been a long message, I know. I'm praying that I didn't get in the way of it and that you were able to speak. It's very personal to so many. It's real in everybody's life. Lord, it's one of those places that we know we need you so desperately. I know that's true of a number of people that are sitting with us right now. Grief has been a, a tough thing for them. But Lord, you can lift it. And I pray you will. And I'm praying that they will allow you to. That they will allow you to do the work that only you can. So Lord, would you set them free. That they might be free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.